But first, we start with the continuing fight over this new Massey Tunnel. How much is this thing going to cost now? Why did the NDP cancel that bridge over the Fraser River to replace the chronically clogged Massey Tunnel? And what's going on with the secrecy here on how much this thing is going to cost? Let's discuss now with my guest, a liberal MLA, Todd Stone. He's the former transportation minister in the previous Liberal government. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Todd, thank you for coming on today. Uh, good morning, Mike. Okay, let's start, first of all, with uh, the secrecy around this project. I mean, we saw the NDP government this week release over 100 pages of documents on this massive project, and, I mean, there's a lot of stuff censored and blacked out in these in these documents. What information are you looking for that's been censored here? Well, Mike, uh, you know, quite quite shockingly, the business plan that the NDP have released uh, it, it does uh, it, it has a whole bunch of, of critical uh, information, lots of numbers that are that are redacted or blacked out. Uh, it, what that means is it doesn't uh, doesn't enable a, a British Columbians to uh, to uh, really truly uh, assess the cost comparisons between the NDP's tunnel and the bridge options because uh, all of those related numbers are, are blacked out. Um, likewise, the uh, the comparable breakdowns for the eight-lane bridge uh, alternative were redacted. Uh, the, uh, the value for money analysis, contingency budgets, on and on and on it goes. Uh, these numbers are all are all blacked out. And uh, you know the fun- fundamental question at this point then is you know why uh, why uh, does the government not trust British Columbians uh, with uh, with all of the information relating to uh, a multi-billion-dollar uh, infrastructure uh, decision that they've made. Okay, well, Rob Fleming, the transportation minister, was on with Simi Sarah this morning, and she asked Fleming this this precise question, why is all this stuff censored? Here's what he had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. Rob Fleming this morning. 99% of the document is not redacted. You can read uh, all the details that you would like to about the project. The only things that are redacted, and this is consistent with how government acts on uh, projects uh, throughout the decades, uh, are the commercially sensitive numbers. So there, there there are some areas where, yes, you know, contingency and risk management funds that we believe are necessary to complete the project on time and on budget, those sorts of things uh, are redacted. But they will be released uh, once we have a, a gone out to tender, once we have a competitive bidding process. But it doesn't make any sense to sort of, you know, you don't play poker by laying your hand down on the table. You certainly don't win at it, and we have to go through a competitive negotiation. Okay, so he says there's a legitimate reasons for why this stuff is being kept secret, like an itemized cost breakdown on this mega project. How much is it going to cost to sink a new eight-lane tunnel to the bottom of the Fraser River? How much to build the highway, the road work at either end of the tunnel? How much is it going to cost to remove the existing tunnel? I mean, you know, are you buying this, that this is like commercially sensitive information? They, they can't tell you. Uh, no, I don't buy that at all. Uh, uh, Rob Fleming is, uh, is stretching uh, the, the, the reality of how these projects are actually done. You know, on the, on the previous 10 bridge project, that a uh, 10 lane bridge project that we had uh, worked so hard on uh, for the better part of five years, uh, you know, all of those details were, were out there in the public uh, domain well before uh, the last uh, provincial election. Um, and, and remember, you know, Rob uh, Fleming was on your show back in, I think it was on August 19th of this year. And he, you know, he, this is a guy who uh, will say whatever he needs to say. Uh, you know, he said that our former project never went to procurement. Uh, I believe he went so far as to say it never went to market. There were no bids. You know, we had two bids uh, that, that from qualified proponents that came in 10 lane. A uh, ten-lane bridge. Uh, it, it was going to cost two point six billion dollars for a ten-lane bridge, and Mike, for uh, that, that was inclusive of five hundred million dollars of transit improvements. That was inclusive of uh, eight upgraded interchanges and, and overpasses. Uh, that that uh, that was a, a much broader scope uh, uh, on that project compared to. Uh, what is what is essentially going to well, be a, a 4.3 billion dollar uh, 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 you know eight lane submersible tunnel uh, that only only has uh, you know very 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 modest transit improvements, no ability for transit in the future rail over the, over over this crossing, and and uh, only uh, involves the upgrade of one interchange, that being the Steveston uh, interchange. Well, this is where we get into the problems with the mathematics and the numbers on this thing, because you're saying that the bridge that you guys wanted to build to replace the Massey Tunnel, what did you say it was going to cost? $2.6 $2. billion? 
It was uh, two point six billion, and I, I released. Well, how come? Uh, a how come? Well, well, hang on a sec, because you're saying it's two point six billion, and now this government is saying like, oh no, no, it wouldn't have cost two point six billion. It would have cost like four point two billion. <laughs> well, I released the confidential uh, briefing notes that I had been provided as the minister at, at the time, who was responsible for this project. Uh, I've released these documents uh, on several occasions. Uh, the, the the key document being uh, dated June 13, 2017, uh, that uh, very clearly states that the lowest proponent price uh, is significantly lower than the original project estimate. The original project estimate was 3.5. Uh, yeah. We had a proponent come in with a bid uh, for 2.6 uh, billion, so 900 million dollars below the the, uh, the original uh, project estimate. Uh, Rob Fleming and the NDP can uh, can dance around that and, and try and suggest otherwise, but uh, you know that that is a an official okay. government document that uh, that makes that very very clear. Okay, if the if the bridge had been allowed to proceed, there was actually some preliminary work had started on that bridge project. When it before it was cancelled four years ago, and we've been sitting around four years waiting for some sort of plan here to relieve the congestion. This is the worst traffic bottleneck on the Lower Mainland. If that bridge had been allowed to proceed, would it be open now? Like, when was the opening, the target opening date for that bridge? Uh, the target opening date for the 10-lane bridge uh, was the spring of 2022. So we would yeah. probably be no more than, uh, I'd say, eight months away uh, from opening up that bridge. And and again, uh, it, it included uh, $500 million of transit improvements, uh, you know, upgrades uh, all, all along uh, along the uh, Highway 99, uh, you know, three interchange, new, brand new interchanges, five uh, upgraded uh, uh, overpasses. Uh, the, you know, this, this was a, a substantial corridor improvement uh, for $2.6 billion. Uh, taxpayers are now going to be on the hook, on, uh, as per this NDP plan, uh, for $4.3 billion, uh, so $1.7 billion more uh, for a heck of a lot less. We're going to get eight, an eight-lane submersible tunnel that, uh, frankly, right. I don't believe is ever going to get built. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Steve's why do you, Why do you say that? Why do you say that you don't think this tunnel will get built? Well, there's a, there's a few things going on here. One, uh, it, let's talk about uh, First Nations uh, for a moment. Uh, the, you know, in, in this business case that Rob Fleming has released on pages 32 and 33, it, it maps out uh, uh, the engagement that's been done up to this point with uh, First Nations, particularly uh, Tawasan, um, which is very much in the early stages. And, and I'll tell you, when you read the concerns that are noted in this business case that have been communicated to government on behalf of First Nations, um, it's no no surprise to me. I mean, we we went through this with First Nations. It was made very clear to us that. So what, what are you uh, saying? Be, they're opposed to it. They're opposed to a, tu- well, a I'm, tunnel. I'm I'm saying that to based on the conversations and engagement that we had over five years, there was no appetite whatsoever among First Nations for a submersible tunnel in the Fraser River. Obviously, uh, largely uh, due to the environmental impacts of uh, of doing that. Right. Uh, the 10-lane bridge uh, had uh, pilings that uh, were not in the river. That there was nothing, no impact on the river whatsoever uh, with that bridge, and that was largely influenced by the uh, the input and the consultation, uh, the input okay. from and the consultation with First Nations. Okay. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it a lot. You bet, Mike. Have a great day. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about British Columbia's threatened killer whales now. Our southern resident orcas are a beloved, iconic species in our province. I think anyone who's had a chance to see these majestic whales in the wild just never forget that experience. And we need to protect these whales and help them survive and thrive. But the southern resident orcas have been declining in recent years. There are concerns about a low birth rate. Why? Why are they in trouble? One of the most popular theories, and we've talked about this on the show many times in the past, is that their threat, their food supply is threatened. These whales feed on Chinook salmon. If the Chinook decline, the whales decline. That's We've heard this for many years. Now, though, a brand new study has come to some surprising new conclusions on that. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Professor Andrew Trites. He's the co-author of this new study. He's the director of UBC's Marine Mammal Research Unit, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to this show. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, let's talk about um, the current situation with uh, the southern resident orcas right now. How many of them are left at the moment? Well, um, they're not in good shape. 
they're they're not threatened. They're they're in fact endangered, and they've been right. declining for the past ten years. And the current number in the population is is, is just seventy three. Seventy three animals. How does that compare historically to their numbers? Well, I know a lot of people, when they hear that number, and particularly when I say something like just 73, that implies, well, there must have been thousands in the past. Uh, what we know from photo identifications and reconstructing numbers, because every whale is identified by name and we know family lineages, that um, since the 1960s, the highest they ever numbered was just 98. Um, and they've gone up and down four times. Um, the thing is that when we go further back and we can look at uh, genetic diversity and genes and that, they, the geneticists give us the same conclusion that for at least a century, they never numbered uh, more than 100. Um, and so does that mean that they've always been destined to be a small population or perhaps they were like the North resident population that have the same feeding habits, they just have a different territory north of us and um, they number uh, just over 300. And right. so one question has been, perhaps the Southerns once also numbered over 300, and if that's the case, what, what reset their numbers to this low point happened over a century ago. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, the, about these Southern resident whales, 73 animals right now, and we've heard for a long time that one of the big problems is their food supply, that these whales feed, they feed almost like exclusively on Chinook salmon, is that correct? Um, they don't feed exclusively, um, yeah. but that is their preferred prey. It, it makes up most of their diet. Uh, chum salmon seasonally can become important as well. And then they also will take some bottom fish, uh, things like even sable fish or black cod, a few other things like that. But when you look overall throughout the entire year, um, Chinook is the number one thing on the, on the Southern Resident Killer Whale menu. And, and one yeah. reason for that, because it's very puzzling to us to think, why well, specialize in one salmon type, when you've got a choice of five, yeah. is that the Chinook are really big. They're, they're the biggest of the salmon. There are lots of fat in them, and they are present year-round in different systems. We've got some runs that come in summertime, fall, winter, or spring to spawn. Uh, some are coastal reared fish. Uh, some come from the outer ocean. And, so, and, and they range along the whole coastline here of North America. So if you had to choose one fish, my vote would be Chinook salmon. Right. Okay. So speaking to Andrew Trites, he's the director of UBC's Marine Mammal Research Unit. Uh, we're talking about British Columbia's endangered resident killer whales. So let's talk about your, your study here, Andrew, that uh, took a look at this. And you, you've described your findings as surprising, right? What did you find out? Well, we know that the southern resident killer whales are thinner on average than the northern residents. And that points to them having a food shortage, not starvation, but malnourished. They're, they're not getting as much to eat, or we would expect them to be fatter. We also know that Chinook salmon are in trouble um, throughout all of North America. There are some exceptions, but most of the populations have been declining for a long time. And so there is a connection between this decline and the poor body condition of southern resident killer whales. Now, a lot of people think that because the southern residents have begun coming back to the inside waters here, into the Salish Sea later than normal. They typically came here in the summertime, and now we're seeing them consistently here just in the fall. Um, but that's because there's no more fish here. And, but nobody's tested that. Nobody's gone out to actually see if there are fish there. So we took a boat um, with uh, probably the world's most expensive fish finder, and we zigzagged across, and we wanted to compare um, are there... You know, are there fewer fish here than further north where the fish are funneling in through Johnson Strait and the northern resident killer whales are feeding? And what we had right. expected to find was that there would be fewer fish here coming into Juan de Fuca Strait than coming north. And what we found was the opposite. We, we did find that the numbers, sorry, the size of the fish was about the same in both areas. We found the fish were not uniform but came through in these patches. But when we looked at the numbers of fish within the patches of of Chinook swimming into the Salish Sea, there were four to six times more fish coming into Juan de Fuca Strait. And so wow. we conclude, so our research doesn't say that Chinook are not in trouble and Chinook have not declined. We're saying that compared to the North residents that are feeding still on the fish coming in, there are four to six times more fish here, so there should be 
uh, plenty of fish for the small population to feed on. And so we, we think that this is not the reason why they're not coming in. It's not wow. because of salmon, because the salmon are here. Uh, something else must be going on. And second, it points out to us because the, the southerners and killers are not getting enough to eat. But from our research, we don't see any indication that that is a summertime problem when they're here in the Salish Sea. Um, we believe it's occurring at other times. They're likely winter and spring when they're not here, but are further south, and we think they're off of California and Oregon at that time of year. Okay, so that's really fascinating. So it would appear that there are enough salmon to sustain these the whales here. Is that, is that, what, is that sort of the bottom line that, conclusion? That's, that's the bottom line. We're not yeah. saying that salmon are in great shape, right. um, and it's full of because everybody knows they are in trouble and their number, but of the remaining fish, uh, there's a greater number here that could support the southern residents than there are available to where the northern resident kid whales are still feeding. Yeah, okay, that's interesting because for so long, and I've talked to other scientists in the past who have said, you know, the big problem for these whales is the declining Chinook stocks, and this is why they're struggling. Like, I remember, wasn't there recently even like a starving whale that was out there and, and they, the scientists went out and actually fed them Chinook? Like, I think they were pumping Chinook into the water near these whales yeah, to feed that starving right, no, they whale. They were trying to, um, yeah. but, you know, the, the thing that doesn't add up with that is that um, we know that killer whales, the resident killer whales, they share fish with each other. When they catch a big one, they bite it in half. Another, another one, the whales gets a piece of it. So there's no way that they would leave one of the pod members to starve. Uh, the other thing is that these are the, world, the, the ocean's top predator. And unlike right. other animals that when they get sick and perhaps get cancers, they would get eaten by another predator, there's no one out there to eat uh, a killer whale. And so it's just going to be, they're a lot like humans that if you went into a hospital, into a cancer ward, you see somebody wasting away, your first thought is not, wow, there's a food shortage in this hospital. Why don't they feed this person? Uh, you understand yeah. that, that cancers are wasting uh, diseases. And, uh, and we see these things played in real time, and it's even more um, heart-wrenching because we know the individuals, um, and we can't intercede. So when I see these signs of, of top predators that are starving, um, I see it as they're wasting away and unable to uh, assimilate food. Okay, so, right, so if it's not the lack of prey with their preferred salmon, if there's enough salmon there, 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 there must be something else going on, I guess. Well, we, we, I, I see it here as a food problem because we have to keep in mind that kill whales need, eat, need to eat just like people every day of the year. It isn't just that we protect their food during the summertime. Uh, you've got to be sure that there's food uh, in all the other months of the year. And where we've gotten to know the whales best is, is in the summertime, uh, in the inside waters. Uh, they came back regularly, and uh, they've stopped doing that. But there's really almost no research done trying to figure out what about the other months of the year when they're not here. Is there enough? So, so my attention is focused on primarily California and, uh, and, and even Oregon. So the Columbia River the Klamath River, the uh, Sacramento. And the Sacramento uh, in the early 1800s was produced um, huge, huge, huge runs of Chinook salmon. And today that's seen as just being a fairy tale. And what happened there is that there was so much logging, uh, habitat was destroyed, the rivers were clogged with debris, runoff, uh, marshes were drained. And, and today it supports very, very few salmon. Yet the territory of the southern residents goes from southern Vancouver Island down to California. Mm. Uh, they've got a huge range. But um, our research attention, it seems like the world's research attention, has just been focused here on the northern limits of the range. And in theory, conditions are usually best in summer compared to any other time of the year. All right, welcome back to the show. A few more minutes with my guest, Dr. Andrew Trites, director of UBC's Marine Mammal Research Unit. We're talking about British Columbia's endangered resident killer whales and some of the great findings that he's found in his, his new study. Um, so we talked earlier before the break, uh, Andrew, about if there are enough salmon in the water to apparently sustain these whales. But we, we, as you said, though, they, they still look skinny, right? They look malnourished. So is, it, is, it, is the problem is that maybe they're not eating enough, or, or what do you think the um, problem is there? You know, we, we see them coming back here looking thinner. Yeah. And to me, that says, well, it, it's, it's, if you're arriving here thin, then, then the problem started before. And it's not like you can just uh, overeat in summer and then uh, take the rest of the year off. 
uh, they need to eat. They, they've got really high energy requirements. And, and this is why we keep saying we need to look at before they get here, uh, before they arrive each year, are they getting enough food elsewhere? And yeah. there's been no research attention focused on that part. Everybody's assumed the trouble's here. And what our research is saying is that we don't see um, a shortage. We're not saying that salmon aren't in trouble. We're not saying that salmon right. are really low. We're saying that of the remaining salmon, there are more here than what there are available to the northern residents that are still feeding on the incoming fish. Right, and they're so, doing fine. Like the northern whales are doing fine. Is that right? Um, they, they're also suffering from shortages of prey in the sense of salmon are declining, but uh, they are fatter and the populations are four times bigger, and they're increasing. So um, they're making a go of it. And, and the biggest difference is their ranges. The northern residents go from sort of mid-Vancouver Island up to southeast Alaska, and the southerns get the, the southern portions, southern Vancouver Island, down to California. And, and so while they share some areas in common, let's say British Columbia, where they overlap, it's the further south regions that I think we need to give more attention to. Um, and it's been overlooked. And, you know, yeah. going back in the 1800s, nobody thought much about the need to protect salmon or salmon streams or, or how impacting one species would have ripple effects through entire ecosystems. We know that today. Um, and we need to, if possible, correct these wrongs that were done over a century ago. Right. Speaking of Dr. Andrew Trites from UBC, let me ask you about a, another study that you were involved with. And, and this one made headlines around the world, and that was the discovery of a, a little-known group of orca whales that live farther out out at sea and were feeding on gray whale, baby gray whales? Wow. Well, Tell me I mean, about that. This, essentially, it started with a story run by Hacker Magazine, and it was about a catalog of whales that were photographed and put together so we can identify them and given names, and it was for California and Oregon. And so it updates some previous knowledge. Uh, it shows this group is still increasing, uh, describes them as being sort of somewhat rarely seen elsewhere. A few of them do show up in B.C. And unfortunately, the editor for Hackeye Magazine put on a headline, um, and the world went crazy over it that we discovered a new species when we had not. We simply were filling in more information about this little-known population of whales. And we're still trying to sort out the trans and killer whale population. Are they, we know we've got um, some animals are coming to the Salish Sea and feeding regularly, and it seems like most of the population does come here at some point, and they're coming here to eat other marine mammals. And we're not clear yet exactly how the California population fits in. If they're part of an outer coast population of whales that feeds along the shelf break um, and specializes on small whales and some of the deep-diving animals like elephant seals, for example, um, wow. or if they, or just how they fit in. So it's a piece here, and these catalogs, they're like family albums, and they're just critical for researchers. So, so the real story was, there's a new catalog, we've updated it, we're filling in more of the blanks, um, but it's not a new species, unfortunately. And uh, it became very hard once that headline was out, and it was not something that I or, or the researcher in charge, Josh McInnes, had said. Um, yeah. or it, it just got somebody misunderstood it, and literally, once the cat was let out of the bag, uh, we just couldn't get it back in. Okay, so it's not a new species of orca, but it, it, there there are a group of a group of killer whales that they seem to be different from other whales, though, right? And what they're feeding uh, on. There, there are some differences yeah. about them, and and the thing is that the best known killer whales have been the resident killer whales, the ones that only eat fish, and that's right. because they've come back to in these regular areas, almost like a, a local resident. And over the years, they've been well studied. The transient form um, were called that because they would they would show up and then disappear just as fast as they arrived, and they never overstayed their welcome. And that's because they're hunting other marine mammals, and they can't let the seals know that they're there, or the seals get mm -hmm. wise to it. And um, so, there's less known about them. And the fact that we had persecuted seals and sea lions for so long, and they were culled and hunted. And by the early 1970s, there are very few left. Um, and if you remove the food supply of this type of killer whale that needs to eat them, their numbers will suffer too. So since the marine mammals have been protected in the early 1970s, we saw an increase in the numbers of seals, an increase in the numbers of sea lions, and a parallel increase in the numbers of transient killer whales. So we see them much more often now. 
Uh, in fact, people okay. in Vancouver encounter him like in around uh, the ferry terminals and around the float plane terminals, yeah. uh, seeing things that they haven't seen before. And it's a sign that if we allow nature to heal itself, uh, life will come back again. And, and we're getting to experience it, that in real time. I find your work fascinating. Thank you for coming on to share some of your findings today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Huawei now, the Chinese telecom giant, uh, one of the world's largest smartphone providers. They've been doing business in Canada for many years, and now they want a piece of the 5G action here in our country, the 5G wireless network in Canada. Uh, Huawei would like to have a role in helping build that. Uh, the Canadian government at this point has not yet decided if Huawei will be granted permission to work with Canadian networks to create a 5G network in Canada. This, of course, has gotten very complicated after the Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, were jailed in China for more than a 1,000 days after Canada's arrest of Meng Wanzhou, uh, the Chinese tech executive with Huawei. Have a listen to this here now. This is uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He was asked about this. Will Huawei be allowed into Canada to build this 5G network, especially after what happened to the two Michaels? Have a listen to what Trudeau had to say here. Obviously, it's very good news uh, that the Michaels have been returned to Canada, and I want to thank all the incredible public servants uh, and diplomats and officials who worked unbelievably hard to get to this moment, uh, as well as thanking our partners and allies around the world who stood strongly in solidarity uh, with Canada and specifically uh, with these two Canadians. Uh, obviously, as we uh, develop our plan for governing, as we pull together our positioning, um, this will have an impact, and uh, we look forward to... Uh, sharing a decision on on many different issues including on uh, telecommunications and Huawei uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, it will have an impact, but what will the decision be? We continue to wait to see what the Trudeau government will decide when it comes to Huawei and 5G in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest. We've got a great panel for you on this. Margaret McQuaig Johnston on the line. She's a senior fellow at the Institute for Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa a member of the Canada-China Forum Advisory Board. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Margaret, thank you for coming on today. Good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Carlo Dade. Carlo is a director of the Trade of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation. Carlo, thank you for doing this. Hey, great to be here. Also a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa. So you've got two zero senior fellows on the show today. Okay, thank you for mentioning that. Margaret McQuig-Johnston, let me go to you first. Should Huawei be allowed into Canada to develop this 5G network or no? Well, we don't have time this afternoon for the uh, afternoon here in Ottawa uh, for the 1,843 reasons why we should not allow uh, Huawei in our 5G. Um, but no, um, the, the, uh, the, the evidence of... Uh, spying in the equipment of stealing IP uh, is just too strong. And I think one of the, the telling things is that China brought in uh, in 2017 a national intelligence law um, that requires companies to spy for, for China and to keep that spying secret. And so, uh, no, we should not allow it. So you, so you think that if Huawei was allowed in here to help build a 5G network that the Chinese state government would use it to spy on Canada? Well, in fact, yeah, uh, I, I believe so. It's just been found to have done that in the Netherlands. Uh, they were uh, listening to the telephone conversations of the prime minister and ministers, and they were able to track which um, telephone numbers the uh, security agency in uh, Holland was was tracking. So, um, wow. I mean, that that's evidence right there. Okay, uh, Carlo. So no, uh, yeah, Carlo mm -hmm. Dade, what do you think? So, you know, Margaret's absolutely right to raise the, the security issues. And those are certainly a part of the discussion that we need to have in Canada. But we have to run this through also a Canadian analysis. What's in the Canadian national interest? And the national interest outside of Ottawa, outside of Toronto. Look, in British Columbia, Internet coverage is fairly good, except for rural communities and remote First Nations communities. 
we're talking like only a third of First Nations communities have what the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Telecommunications Committee, says is adequate Internet access. Huawei is the world leader in doing remote, difficult installations. They're all over Africa where Siemens, Ericsson, and the others aren't. They've also made a commitment to Canada to focus on rural, remote, indigenous First Nation access. So we certainly do need to think about the security issues. And I would note that the Chinese are probably the second best globally at stealing information um, and capturing information, second only to the Americans, uh, who we seem to tolerate. But this is not to say that Huawei should be here. It's just to say that we need to broaden the conversation to make sure that all Canadians and the interests of Canadians, including First Nations and remote communities, Huawei's made a specific commitment uh, to Canada to work with First Nations, uh, and they have this. I just haven't seen that from the other 5G providers. It, they may okay. have it, but I haven't seen it. So I'm not disagreeing with Margaret. I'm only saying that the conversation has to get broader than the narrow, let's do a favor for the American security uh, concerns that we have. Margaret McQuaig-Johnson, what do you think of that? Well, um, I agree we should be looking broadly across Canada, and certainly Huawei has done a lot in installing uh, 4G equipment in rural and remote. Uh, so there, there's not an issue with that. It's the 5G that's the problem. And when we look at Canadians across the country, there's consistency in the view that uh, Huawei should be banned. Uh, 76% say it should be banned, 14% unsure, and only 10% of Canadians think that it should be allowed. And that's consistent numbers in every region across Canada. Okay, Carla, let me go back to you for a minute. And Margaret's concerns about China using this 5G network to spy in Canada, which I think is a legitimate concern. Do you think that is that not a big concern to you, or do you think there are some ways that could be that this could be mitigated or prevented? Well, absolutely, it's a big concern. Uh, I do think that there are ways that it could be mitigated. The British offer a model in terms of doing security checks on equipment and limiting where it can be allowed. But again, the thing with five G is much about the software. Um, as it is about the hardware. But again, I'm spying again. I would get back to this. I would rephrase Margaret's question. Look, we do not have security of information that's put out over the Internet. Uh, your listeners will be familiar with Eric Snowden and the revelations about massive collection of foreign intelligence, upstream uh, scraping of information by the National Security Administration. So the question really is, do we want to have the Chinese join the Americans uh, in terms of uh, taking information, or is our concern only with China? I would say I have serious concerns about both, but I'm a bit more uncomfortable with China. But we need to ask the right question, and it's not a zero-sum, no spying if we don't have Huawei. Um, we face the issue currently, and we have to wrestle with it with the Americans, as well as the Chinese. Okay, Margaret McQuaig-Johnson, your thoughts? Well, in terms of the British, they did make a decision um, in early 2020 uh, to allow Huawei in parts of their system with uh, equipment being checked. And literally five months later, they reversed themselves and they said they were going to ban it. They're, they're giving their carriers till 2027 uh, to uh, get rid of the old Huawei equipment and put in the fresh equipment. Um, in Canada, I think there's no need to give our carriers that kind of uh, lead time. Uh, they've known for, for more than three years that this is a possibility, and only one of them has continued uh, to make investments in Huawei 5G equipment, and that's TELUS. And you know that's the, okay. you know that's on their their risk management. So okay, all right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about Huawei, the Chinese tech giant, should they be allowed for into Canada for five G network development? A complicated question here, especially after the two Michaels 
This will be a big decision here of the Justin Trudeau government here in the days ahead. Our panelists are Margaret McQuaig-Johnston, University of Ottawa, Carlo Dade, Canada West Foundation. Lots of calls on this one. Let's go to Lars on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Lars. Our panelists. Lars, go ahead. Absolutely no. No to Huawei. Distance ourselves from China as much as possible, but leave it to Trudeau to screw this up. Okay, we'll see. We'll see what Trudeau uh, decides. Uh, Let me go back to Carlo. Carlo, do you think like when you you know this is a a pretty popular sentiment in Canada right now? We should we should cut off ties with China. Do you think we'd be doing I don't know more harm than good to our economy if we do that? Your thoughts? So you know, cutting ties with China is extremely difficult, not possible for Canada. It's not just the direct trade. China is the world's largest economy, purchasing power parity. But Canada is an export-dependent country. We export for a living more than the global median. So it's not just about getting out of China. If you go into Indonesia, who's the largest foreign trade partner? Who's the largest investor? Brazil, who's the largest foreign trade partner? Who's the largest investor? So in terms of the global market, even if you try to run away from China as a major export of commodities like Canada, you're still going to run into China. China is the largest economy. It's the largest producer, not just consumer, but also the largest producer of a lot of what we produce here in Western Canada. So you're going to have to deal with China. And this idea that you can run away, yeah, you can run away, but you're just going to run into China someplace else. Okay, Margaret McQuig-Johnson, what do you think of that? Well, I agree. We will always be trading with China. Uh, Certainly, they want our products. Uh, particularly our resources, and we want theirs, uh, electronics and other things. Um, but we we have to understand, and, uh, you know, some of the ministers in the Canadian government have been saying this, the China of 2021 is not the China of 2017 when we were uh, talking about having a free trade agreement with them. Just look at the malign intent that they've demonstrated to Canada. Um, I believe that the decision on Huawei was made probably as long as two years ago, uh, but the Prime Minister has been sitting on it, I believe, because he didn't want to make things worse for our hostages. Now they're out, and practically five minutes later, he's saying, we'll be announcing a, a Huawei decision as soon as the government's back. So I, I am a thousand percent um, convinced that this will be a no decision. And a you, decision to not allow Huawei. So you think Trudeau will ban ban Huawei from 5G? Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Okay. Let's go back to the phone line. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Well, I think the, you're treading a, a, a thin wire if you're going to be playing that kind of game with China. They're just too, too big of a world power. I mean, Canada doesn't lay uh, blameless in this whole thing. They they went and uh, acted as the, the U.S.'s puppet and arresting one of their citizens. Um, so, I mean, you know, all, all is fair in love and war, they say, right? Well, I guess we, we have an extradition treaty with the United States uh, that was exercised for the arrest of, of Meng Wanzhou. But do you think, uh, let me go back to Carlo. Carlo, if the Trudeau government does turn around and tell uh, Huawei to, Okay, we've lost Carlo there. But if let me go to Margaret McQuig Johnson. Margaret, do you think that if Trudeau does what you think he will do and, and turn around and, and tell China that Huawei's banned from Canada for 5G, do we run the risk of China somehow retaliating? Because they, they've made those kind of threats fairly clear that if, if we do yeah. that, there will be consequences. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. They show consequences when we act and uh, you know the china didn't ha- have any consequences when they kidnapped two innocent people innocent people um and uh you know that's that's a significant thing uh so we have to look at the kind of uh country china is today and um uh, for example they've they've banned all foreign equipment from china so if we still had nartel Nortel would not be able to sell in the China market. Uh, Ericsson and Nokia are not allowed to ch- uh, sell in the China market, even though a lot of their manufacturing is done there. Not manufacturing for the uh, North American market. That's done in Mexico. 
but for the uh, for other markets, it's done in China, but China won't let them sell there. So, you know, we have to look at the fact that China um, sees this right. It's, um, it plays a tough game, but we have to be in a position to stand up for ourselves. And we know that 5G equipment has back doors where uh, the company, and it's the company employees, uh, have to get in and do updates and do fixes, as, uh, you know, a few times a week. Um, so that's a way that they can uh, use the system. And then there's also the possibility of what uh, they call a bug door, a bug put into the system to re- be released at a later time, or maybe even the complete shutdown of the system. Okay. Just imagine if, if you know, after Meng w- was arrested, uh, just imagine if Huawei had control through um, uh, connections to our electricity grid. Uh, which wow. is integrated with our IT system because it has to be. That that's such a dangerous prospect, and, and okay. we already be having blackouts as India has had. Margaret, thank Margaret McQuig Johnson. Thank you for your time today. I also want to thank Carlo Dade, the other member of our panel today from the Canada West Foundation. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the vaccination rules for travel now. It's been a big news day on this file today. Monday, November 8th, that's the day for the Canada-U.S. land border to reopen for fully vaccinated non-essential travelers. The United States set to accept vaccines approved by the World Health Organization. Now, that includes the AstraZeneca vaccine widely used in Canada. That, that's good news. Now, here's the big one, though. What about those mixed-dose vaccines? What if you received two different vaccines? Still no official word on that. But there's several news agencies reporting today that mix-and-match vaccines will be allowed by the United States. The Bloomberg News Service and others reporting that today. Still not official, though. Okay, think about this now. What about international cruise lines? Lots of people love cruising. Will the cruise ships accept a mix-and-match vaccine? My next guest has some direct knowledge of that. Michael Harrison. Michael is a cruise ship entertainer. He is a very talented and popular ventriloquist who has performed across Canada and the United States, and we've reached him today in Windsor, Nova Scotia. Michael, thanks for coming on today. Hello, Mike. Great to be with you today. It's great to have you on, Michael, and uh, congratulations on all your success in your career. I've just been checking out your website this morning, funnyguy.ca, which I think is an awesome website name. Before we get into the the cruise, your your, uh, career on cruise ships, Michael, Tell me a little bit about how you got into ventriloquism, because I think that's very cool. Well, first of all, let me just say I'm doing this entire interview uh, without my lips moving. Okay. You just have to trust me on this. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I've been doing this for years. I started talking to myself when I was 10 years old. I learned ventriloquism from a, a little book I got from the library. Uh, I did comedy, magic, and ventriloquism at juggling shows for years. Born and raised in Victoria, beautiful Victoria, oh. B.C. Wonderful. Yes, and uh, I've done everything from uh, fairs and festivals, Christmas events, corporate events, comedy clubs, um, and then for the last 25 years, almost entirely on cruise ships. So it's been a, it's been a long and very, uh, in my mind, <laughs> my opinion, a very successful career uh, talking to dolls. Well, I think it's cert- I can certainly agree with that, and it's interesting that you've had such a long run on the cruise ships, and is has that been uh, a good business for you? Do you enjoy performing on the cruise ships? Absolutely. I've, I've been able to see the world. I've literally been all around the world on cruise ships from Australia, Japan, Europe, the Baltic, to Russia, South America, Hawaii, Alaska, over and over, over again. It never gets tiring. Um, most people have <laughs> this save and save for months and years to go on a cruise and i'm just lucky i get to do this as a career well i think that's awesome so let's talk about the uh the vaccine rules on the cruise ships now now you you have received you received a mixed dose of the vaccine right that's right uh myself and my fiance who's also my partner on stage we both received astrazeneca followed by moderna right right i I received the same thing exactly the same Mm -hmm. combo now what happened when you uh, your your most recent offer to go on a cruise ship? They didn't accept that vaccine. I understand. Yeah, that's correct. We we basically we were at sea on a cruise ship in March of last year when everything came to an end. So we were sent home. So we've been home for uh, eighteen plus months, 
And oh. finally, the ship started going again, and um, this would have been back in November. We got our first offer. We could have had a four-month contract uh, full-time for four months. Regularly, we do short contracts, seven to 14 days at a time, or even three days, and then we, we uh, hop ships from port to port and fly to a port, get on another ship. But this is unusual to get a four-month contract. Um, but unfortunately, with the mixed vaccines, the cruise lines are, are not um, recognizing those as fully vaccinated. So in their minds, we're not vaccinated at all. So we had to say no to that contract. It was followed by another three-month contract, which we had, had to say no to. And now we have upcoming contracts starting oh, within, within just over two weeks now. Um, November 4th, we need to be flying to San Diego to board the Disney Wonder cruise ship to go through the Panama wow. Canal. And we are on pins and needles because we don't know if we're going to be able to go or not because Nova Scotia has now just recently approved a third vaccine for people who, who need to work out of country and or on cruise ships. Uh, but we're still waiting to get it. It's, it's in the process. And we, uh, we're waiting for, a, for an email any day now to say if we're approved or not. If we're not approved, we got to cancel another cruise. Oh, man. Okay. That, so your life is sort of you know, up in the air here uh, <laughs> yeah. as, you, as you wait for this. Like, are all the cruise lines, I mean, there's many big cruise lines around the world. Do they all have the same rules? Like, do any of them accept the mix and match vaccines? Or are they all, are they all insisting otherwise? From what I know and the research I've done, all the ones based in the U.S., and if the cruise is leaving from a U.S. port, you need uh, to be fully vaccinated, which as of right now, is not a mixed vaccine. Um, right. We are we have been offered a cruise in December, which is a, on Royal Caribbean, which is based in the U.S. But the the cruise starts in Barbados and ends in Barbados, does not touch U.S. soil. Um, I think other than maybe one of the U.S. Virgin Islands might stop that. Uh, no, actually, it doesn't. Uh, so those those cruises are exempt. So we can take that cruise. That's not an issue. But if they're starting yeah. or ending in the U.S. Yeah, it's uh, the mixed vaccine is no good to us as of today. Wow, what a hassle for you and your fiance just trying to yeah. get on with your lives and your career and your and your entertaining. Yeah. Um, you did mention that uh, we reached you today in Nova Scotia, and Nova Scotia is one of the provinces in Canada which has indicated that okay, look, if you have to travel for business like you do, obviously that, and you've got a mix and match vaccine, we're willing to give you a third a third dose of the vaccine so you would you would then qualify, right? Is, is that what your hope is? Well, that was the hope. Today initially was announced as the day that we could uh, get online and make our appointment uh, and get our third shot because we need it for work. But then that changed to the 19th of October. So now there, now we have to submit an application with all, with all the documents and letters from our employers and letters from the cruise lines and our itineraries and our vaccine records and it has to be processed and we have to be approved now there could be a chance that for whatever reason they may not approve us we don't know it's out of our hands now but they have all our information and now we are just waiting for them to send us an email to say if we're approved or not the crazy thing oh. is we can run down to our local pharmacy and get a moderna this afternoon if we're allowed but um that email has confirmation has not come in yet and we don't know when it's coming in and the clock is ticking if we don't have it by well, I believe by the twentieth of this month, uh, then we can't we can't take our next. Oh next man! Wow, wow! I mean, what <laughs> a what a hassle and what a predicament that you're in, and you've been uh, your ventriloquism show has been idle for like I guess I guess you haven't. Yeah. When was the last time you worked? I guess you haven't worked in like a year and a half or something. Or well, I I've done I've only done one or two live shows. Nova Scotia, we've done very well with the COVID numbers, so. We're up to, we're almost back to normal. I forget what phase we're at, but it's the phase before life back to normal. So yeah. they are allowing gatherings of uh, larger groups, I think 100 people indoors. So I have done a few local shows, uh, but primarily I've been doing uh, virtual shows. I've set up a, a home studio in my house here in Windsor, and I've been doing virtual shows for a lot of corporate clients mainly and some uh, family shows as well, but um, all over North America, I've been. That's what I've been doing for the last eight months, nine, wow. ten months. Our virtual that's, shows. That's got to be frustrating to have that mixed dose vaccine when there have been a lot of studies that have been issued to show that look, there's nothing wrong with these mixed vac mixed dose vaccines. Yeah. And in fact, you've got tremendous protection against the virus. Yes, yes. I mean, I just saw this study released recently that 
in some cases, it's better than right. two doses of the same vaccine. So I guess, you know, to sum it all up, very frustrating. It's yeah. it, I, I, I appreciate the fact that this is a, a one of a kind event. And I appreciate the fact that there's a there's a lot of hoops that uh, all these decision makers have to jump through, not only nationally, but internationally with who and in the U.S. with the CDC. And so I know it has to go through a lot of processes. At the end of the day, it's been very frustrating. We're just trying to be as patient as we can, crossing our fingers and hoping for the best that so we can get back to work. So yeah. I don't have to go back to cleaning toilets, which is what I did for eight <laughs> months while I was out here. I had a job as a janitor, so <laughs> I'm doing what I can to, to make ends meet, but we're, we're just hoping we can go back to you life must... as close to normal as, as it used to be. Yeah, you and, you and everybody else, Michael, um, you must miss your passengers. Do you miss cruising? I do, yeah. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it, it, it is um it, it is a job that has its challenges. Living yeah. under the suitcase for months at a time is, is not everyone's idea of a good time. But the places that I've seen and the people that I've met and the connections I've met, I have friends now from all over the world, crew members and fellow entertainers from ships that I've made over the last 25 years. And it, it's it's really like my second family, you know, um, the cruise, the, uh, the cruise uh, crew and uh, people I work with. So hopefully we will get back to that someday soon. I sure hope so, Michael. Your, your act sounds awesome, and you sound like a great guy, and I hope that you're back to cruising very, very soon, and you get the good news about that third dose of the vaccine there in Nova Scotia. Thanks a lot for coming on today to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for the interest, and thanks for spreading the word out there. Let's, let's hope we get back to normal soon. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you, Michael. Michael Harrison there. He is a cruise ship entertainer. Wow, over 20 years on the high seas there, entertaining people with his ventriloquism show. And he hasn't really done a show on the high seas here for a long time. He's got that mixed-dose vaccine. And you want to check out his website. It's a really fun, fun website. He's got funnyguy.ca.